listening to Impacted. From the University of Sussex. Podcast series about research for real change. Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact that their work is having in the world. My name's Will Hood. And I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And today we are talking with Professor Lucy Robinson. Lucy is a professor of collaborative history, as well as joint head for the Department of History at the University of Sussex. What history is, is a political battlefield. It's what history is taught to our children in the national curriculum is a political battlefield. I think we're often told what our history should be. We're told how we should feel about it. Um, we're told what archives and documents we're allowed to access. We're told who should be represented in it, as though it somehow isn't us. Lucy feels strongly that history can and should be understood as a dynamic and social force in the world, rather than being a detached and objective study of the past. Often, particular historical narratives have squeezed out minority groups or framed them in a way that serves power. And in this politicized understanding of history, this is important because, in the words of George Orwell, whoever controls the past also controls the future. I won a course in the first year called The History of Now, which is about trying to take the skills we have as a historian and apply them to yesterday. Hmm. I'm not going to totally give up on, you know, I, I do think as a historian, stuff probably should be in the past a bit. That's really fascinating, because it, it means it's a set of tools, right? History a, is a yeah, set of tools. Exactly. I suppose it, it's, a historian's role is often to uncover the lost voices in the past, to try and make some redress of power balance in the present. You know, there's a, a sort of justice to uncovering unheard voices. I want to get to the everyday ways in which people build collective identities, try and make their world a better place and try and stand up for what they believe in and particularly the role of popular culture in that. I take popular culture really, really seriously. So do you ever get, uh, I mean, I'm sure you do, but you get pushback from people that are expecting a more, uh, <laughs> a more reserved version of a historian? Yeah. I'm probably not even a proper historian, you know. <laughs> um do you remember a time in your life when you thought, this is what I want to do with my time? This is, this is what I care about. You know, was, was there a, a light bulb moment? I'm not even sure there is now. Um, I think in a lot of ways, I could be seen as an accidental academic. So I think I took most of my learning it actually came from my activist background um, and then that informed my academia. So I don't have a traditional access route to university and education. So I left school without any qualifications, really. Uh, had a baby at 17 and then went back into education part-time. Um, was a youth worker for a while and that kind of got me enough credits to get into university where I studied at Oxford Poly. And then I really fell in love with this chapter that was in a book called Political Shakespeare by Alan Sinfield and made my daughter move to Brighton with me so that I could do the MA part-time. Um, and I then did a PhD part-time whilst bringing up my family. Um, so I don't know at what... I can't say that there's this, like, light bulb moment. 
where you suddenly think, oh my God, I'm going to be an academic and sit on the grass and talk about things with clever people and wear suede patches on my tweed jacket, you know. Um, I think it's just, I think I just was a grafter. I'd always grafted. I'd had lots of other jobs. I treated this like I would treat any other job. What is collaborative history? And how does that differ from what people would think of as a common or garden history? Yeah, okay, well... I made up collaborative history as a job title, but it didn't really exist in, in anywhere else. So it can sort of be whatever I want it to be, which is one of the things I found quite attractive about it. But I think for me, it's about a way of working rather than the subject that I work on. So for me, you know, any historical research is very much teamwork, um, whether that's about research assistants and admin and archivists and curators or the people that you're actually talking to and are going to listen to you. So it felt quite important to have a, a title that valued the process of how we work. I think that's something that I'm really interested in. You know, if it's not my job to sit in the ivory tower, look out of the window and study someone from above, um, I see myself as working very much with the stories that people are already developing for themselves about the world around them. I don't really see my the majority of my work as being solely for universities. I see myself as being working with musicians, documentary makers, groups of young people, local heritage groups, and collaborating with them rather than being the intellectual with some clever ideas which I then generously give to people in the outside world that I see my work as being co-produced. This sounds like it's an ethical approach. Would that be true to say? And that you, you care about the people whose history it is, presumably? Yeah, I think um, you could see it as, as ethical. I think it comes through two particular strands of my training, both of which were at Sussex. I did my MA at Sussex. I did my MA in the cent- at the Centre of Sexual Dissidence and Cultural Change, and that really introduced ideas of queer studies, ways in which we might break down hierarchies. It was at the beginning of the emergence of queer theory. It was a really yeah. lucky moment to be here, I think. OK. Um, and thinking about turning some of our critical lenses on ourselves um, and thinking about how we might challenge some of the orthodoxies and why we might challenge them. The Centre of Sexual Dissidence, which was set up at Sussex in the early 90s, had a formative influence on Lucy, who embraced the idea that you could treat popular culture as a serious academic discipline. She wanted to better understand how popular culture affected the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender individuals, and in particular the role that the 1980s played in establishing queer identities. So we were a kind of cohort of people who were really invested in trying to find ways that academic study might actually help us make sense of ourselves, help us make sense of the world, at a point where you know AIDS has finally been acknowledged as a massive assault on the well-being of gay men, whether or not they're personally affected by it. And you know, not that far off Clause 28. Explain to our audience what Clause 28 is. So Clause 28 was a piece of legislation that was brought through local government funding legislation, which ensured that local government funding could not be spent on anything that would promote homosexuality or represent it as an alternative to the family unit. Uh, No one was ever actually prosecuted under it, but it worked really well as a kind of self-censoring moment where schools were really scared that if they taught gay literature, 
some art galleries or theatres were concerned about whether or not they could use public funding to represent images that were seen to be promoting homosexuality as though it's infectious. Lucy went on to do a PhD in 2007 entitled Gay Men and the Left in Post-War Britain, How the Personal Got Political. And although her work has ended up focusing primarily on the 1980s, it's this relationship between the personal and the political that has been a theme throughout much of her work as a historian. New sort of political history was emerging at that time where people were understanding that politics doesn't just happen in Parliament or in the memos between civil servants, it happens in people's lives and their feelings and their experiences. I guess at the moment now it feels as though all politics is quite personal and emotionally based, but that hasn't always been the case. You know, it's, that's a very contemporary understanding that our politics is about our feelings rather than being something that might be seen as more of a kind of objective analysis. And so I was really interested in capturing that moment where what you actually do in your actual life matters as much as or sometimes more than the big political structures. And then I, I think the problem is that the eight is just loads of stuff happened. And it also coincides with the with the big growth of media technologies, new forms of communication as a historian. The amount of evidence you've got to get your head around is massive. So if I was an early modernist, my ch biggest challenge might be making sense of the scarcity of the small amounts of traces left historically. But actually, when you move into the contemporary period, it's the opposite. So you actually, you get, for me, I found that I could ask questions that I found more interesting than what happened I found the question how on earth do we make sense of all this much more interesting than finding out what happened and I suppose working on something so contemporary really helped me get there. Lucy has been the academic lead on Observing the 80s a digital project which brings together audio clips from the British Library's oral history collections and documents and correspondence from the University of Sussex's Mass Observation Project which ran from 1981 to 1990. It also includes teaching resources and infographics and was funded by JISC, a non-profit organisation that provides technology services to higher education institutions. So this digitisation project, Observing the 80s, yeah. um, it was funded by JISC. Can you talk a little bit about the collaboration? Who was it with? How did they complement each other? Observing the 80s taught me probably the most about collaboration um, and the possibilities of it as a as a way of thinking about ways of working together. And the starting point that was really important for me was that Observing the 80s grew out of teaching practice. So it was a direct translation of a module that I was teaching, a second year module called 1984 Thatcher's Britain. And so part of the collaboration was actually working with students on that model. So the main collaborations between the archives were between the Mass Observation Project, the British Library Oral History Collection and the Special Collections at Sussex. But on top of that, I think there was another set of collaborations which were about different types of history work. So we were working with archivists and with curators. So it wasn't just about moving across archives, it was about thinking about ways that we could work together. And then that was complemented by having students involved with the selection of our ephemera, for example. And it was a group of students who identified which ephemera from special collections they wanted. And they went through all of the processes of trying to identify what was in copyright, getting permissions. So they literally built the archive, actually. I think that's really where I got the idea that a collaboration could be more than just sharing resources. It could actually be about 
finding ways of working as a community. And that felt quite appropriate. I mean, if the biggest, you know, the big debate in the 1980s is that there's no such thing as society or that people are really divided and that there's lots of different groups who don't feel that they're being heard or represented, then it felt like a really appropriate match of a structure of working because it's a way of kind of bringing, trying to bring people together, recognise and value the, the individual importance of each archive. If people wanted to find the website, where could they find it? So you can access all the Observing the Eighties materials through the catalogue of Mass Observation Project. There's also a bespoke website, which if you just Google Observing the Eighties, you'll find it. So that gives you access to digitised writing for the Mass Observation Project, a series of interviews from the British Library Oral History Project and a set of ephemera. And there's also an open educational resource, so there's a kind of freebie version of the module that I was originally teaching. Is it a given that this work reaches so many more people, a wider demographic than it would have done without the advent of, of such technology? And is, is that a good thing? I mean, that's the big question about what technology does to learning, right? We could have the same as a historian. That's like the printing press, right? Sure. <laughs> or the photocopier. What does a new technology do to the meaning of the content that it's sharing? I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? And we ought to be able to answer it. Um, I think that there are a number of different ways of looking at it. So the way in which digital digitising objects has usually been seen has been about curatorship. So actually, you know, if you've got something really, really precious, you don't necessarily want everyone getting their hands on it. Um, you want to maintain it. So a digital version of it is kind of easier, safer. The other way we think about it is in terms of reach, that we can get, people can get access to stuff that they couldn't get access to otherwise. And I think, you know, those are both good archival curatorship practices. I don't have a sense that, that a digital archive replaces other forms of archiving, but I think it reproduces some of them. I think that we still need to think about what it is historical research actually is, rather than get totally distracted about whether it's on a screen or not. I think the point is still the connections you make between the objects rather than the form of the objects. But whatever you decide it is, do you think it's having more impact on an audience? I think it means it's much easier for people to get their hands on original research. I think it really equalises who has who can get behind the you know, who can get it behind the door and into an archive. Archives are really exclusive places. Partly they have to be in order to, pres to for preservation reasons. They're also alienating and intimidating. And I always get something a little bit wrong when I go in an archive. I always, you know, forget I'm not supposed to take a pencil in, or I am supposed to take a pencil in, or I forget the number of the, you know, the number of the locker that you've got to have, or I forget to pre-order. You know, it's quite complicated before you even get to the stuff. I think it democratises access in terms of that. I think if digital archives and digital resources are done really well, they leave enough space for people to ask new questions and find new connections between materials. And I think, you know, I, if you can get it out of the building, that's a great idea. And if, it's, if the best way you can do it is virtually, then that's great. That's interesting that the, it's got that digital egalitarian possibility yeah i mean clearly some people still make money out of stuff and not everyone's got access to you know not everyone's got access to wi-fi sure even in, in their workplaces sometimes people haven't got access to wi-fi and you know they i don't want to overplay that idea that this is a totally egalitarian technology per se but it's about how we think about it and how we use it the blog which is also part of the observing 80s um project you have a number of posts on there 
covering all sorts of um, diverse subjects, uh, titles such as um, Partisan Pasts, Left Wing Approaches to Recording uh, the 1980s, Behind Bars, Observing the 80s at Lewis Prison, and, and so on. How do you understand the importance of these new medium, such as the blog. I mean, it's a phenomena which is new, right? But essentially, it's an essay which is um, available online. But do you think that they are an, an important uh, tool for an academic to embrace mediums like this? I think for, for a project like Observing the 80s, which is a yeah, relatively small group of people, it was a really important way of everyone having their input and their lessons, reflections on it, recorded. So we've got blog posts from students from other universities who've used the resources. We had blog posts around the hierarchy of the website. How do we build a digital resource? And we had people blogging about how they'd used it, for example, in the Lewis Prison Project. So it felt like a really useful way of capturing all of its usage, which is very handy when you're writing feedback reports when you've had a grant or there's an impact (laughs) case study to write. It was a way of capturing the project. But it was also a way of saying all of this is part of this project. It's not just the content it's also how did we get how do we transcribe it we had researchers who were working having to re-anonymize sections of some of the some of the sources because actually you know things had slipped through the cracks in the original archive we had to have discussions about what do you do when someone's used tipex on a mass observation project page and change their words and we need to make sure that if we change words it's clear where we've done it and where they've done it how do you do that how do you how do you deal with tipex in a digital resource so i think all of those were really there were different ways of thinking about history and what you do with stories and what the purpose of it is. So for us, I think having that blog that included all of those different things was really important. Have you had any stories about people coming back to you and saying, oh, you know, I, I didn't have access to this this thing before because it was in the archive, but, you know, I, I found it on the blog. It linked it linked from the blog to, to this place, and that was really, really helpful. So the Mass Observation Project stuff has been used in schools in ways that it would be really difficult to organise, uh, particularly if you're working with people who are under 16, to get into an archive. It's expensive to move a class full of students to an archive and they might not even understand why they want to do that. So in that case, that was a really nice example of someone who could use it as an invitation to even just work out what an archive is, you know. I think it's. I think we were more interested in people exploring what it might mean to work with different types of evidence and to see history as a really broad story that interweaves... We've got a YouTube channel where we interweave music video with Mass Observation Project writing and clips clips from the British Library's oral history collection and trying to think about what happens when we bring those things together. What happens when we say the stuff that you have in your house, the stuff that you like, the stuff that you think, that's of a historical record and that matters. So I think we've had conversations about how, how it's helped people think about themselves and their histories. We haven't had that brilliant story where someone goes, oh, my God, that's my dad, you know. About one person in 20 of both sexes is homosexual. On any busy street, you pass half a dozen every five minutes because, contrary to popular opinion, most of them don't look any different from anyone else. I've felt uncomfortable since the day that I was born Since the day I glimpsed the black abyss in your eyes Another medium that Lucy has used to share her research is documentary film. Queer Rama compiled footage from 1919 to 2017 from the British Films Institute's archives set to music. Queer Rama was pitched 
in response to an opportunity to make a documentary using BFI archival footage to mark the anniversary of the Sexual Offences Act from 1967. And I'd worked with Daisy Asquith on a number of other projects collaboratively, and we'd also been doing some academic work together. So we'd sort of found ways of talking about both documentary practice and academic research already. Um, and she put together a team of people that she'd worked with in various ways that she just thought would work together. And we all fell in love and were all really interested in how we could make this documentary queerly. So not just a story of kind of gay history, but ways of thinking about what happens if we disrupt narratives, what happens if we're happy for things to be contradictory and multiple and not always make sense because actually that's what life's like. And what if we work together to kind of learn from each other rather than tell each other what to do? And so that's what we did. How important do you think this uh, medium is for reaching a non-academic audience? And, and by non-academic, I don't mean obviously not bright. I mean, but people that are unlikely to read academic papers. I think that's what I found you know, profoundly moving about the Queer Armour project is the impact that it's had. I mean, Daisy's been touring it in Russia, in South Korea, in places where there is very little space for any public discussion around homosexuality. And so what felt for, for us as a kind of historical narrative is being received as a guidebook of how to try and assert change. I mean, that's an incredibly humbling, moving reaction to a piece of work. I think the other thing that Daisy did that I have never experienced before and has raised a lot of questions in my mind about how we work is she wanted to directly take particular pieces of academic writing, so it's a piece by Andy Medhurst, a piece by Sarah Ahmed, and think about what happens if rather than writing an essay informed by that, we made a film informed by it. So it's got footnotes and credits to academics in a way that you never see in documentaries. And we had this brilliant conversation where I realised that I knew how to reference Daisy's work in my writing, but we didn't know how to reference an academic article in her film. So if we really want to get to a collaboration, right, it's got to be more than just one person citing or not citing someone else. It's got to be thinking about, well, what are we doing when we work together? I think Queer Armour tries to give value to the amount of work lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people have had to put into all of their popular cultural interactions. You have to look really hard to find yourself sometimes. You know, if you're not, if you're only being represented as a pathologised victim or you're only being represented as a serial killer, then how do you take those cultural representations and find yourself in them. And so in some ways, I think Queer Armour is an, is an homage or a recognition of all of the work that queer audiences have had to put in to the little tiny scraps of where they might get to see a little bit of themselves and how they've the work that they've had to do to build that together. Do you think that's the power of it? Yeah, for me, I think that's what's... I think it's trying to recognise that legal change is not the only story, you know, that actually people... Laws don't come from nowhere. People have to identify themselves and recognise that there is a possibility of change or even that there is a possibility of there being other people like them. Right? 
So I think it, it kind of marks some really quite heroic interviews that some people have given. Um, but it also acknowledges the work that, you know, film and music and TV does for us and just finding someone who looks or feels a little bit like you in the world. Mm, it's a very powerful or can be a very powerful tool for empathy, kind of documentary. Yeah. So I have in my notes that you have been at various public events around the film world, um, one of which being the Sheffield Documentary Festival, yeah. which I know quite well. I've been a few times. Um, it's a great scene, Sheffield, isn't it? And I was wondering um, if you were doing Q&As, perhaps, for this film, whether you have any anecdotes from people in the audience that where the film had a particular impact on them. So when we premiered it at Sheffield, the responses to the Q&A after the premiere were, were really touching. I mean, there was a guy there who's a gay father who was thanking Daisy for having given him a way to share his history with his children as they were growing up. I mean, that's, you know, that's a really, really moving response. Yeah. And there were also, you know, you quite often get a lot of people saying, but why isn't this in there? <laughs> why isn't that there? And that's the problem of, you know, you can't represent everybody through a medium which has marginalised and not represented people. Um, and also it was limited by the BFI archive itself. So rather than those being necessarily criticisms of the project, they're part of that conversation about, well, what do we do with the bits we have got? And then we've had some interesting conversations around Daisy and Alan, who edited it, did it in kind of almost themes linked to life cycle stage. So... This kind of growing up gay, falling in love gay, that kind of stuff. So it was, rather than it just trying to be a historical, this is what happens in 1957, 58, 59. And I think that invites people to engage with it in a slightly different way from feeling like you have to know all the facts from the beginning to the end, that you can recognise what it feels like to be dumped. Making that um, analogous comparison between film and, and papers, I think is really interesting, especially when you've got that immediate feedback, right? I mean, when would you ever get immediate feedback to a research paper? I mean, surely you would get criticised. But... No, you get non-questions. So you get someone saying, there are three things I'd like to say to you about your paper, and then they talk about their own work. So um, you are the founding organiser of the Network for Subcultures, Popular Music and Social Change, which has recently been awarded an AHRC network grant. Um, can you explain what the network does and what your impact has been to date? So the Subcultures Network were a group of scholars, most of whom sort of knew each other or knew of each other, who have been working around the history of youth and youth culture to some extent. So for some of us, it was the main body of their work. For some, it was a side project. And these are all researchers? Yeah, they're all researchers. So we had criminologists, cultural studies, historians. OK, so it's an interdisciplinary yeah, yeah. Uh, network yeah. where you get together. And the, sort of, the story was that we'd finally got people to take youth culture seriously, particularly on the back of a really important book by Bill Osgoby, uh, Youth in Britain Since 1945, which started as a Sussex PhD, actually. But the general argument had been that subcultures and youth cultures used to be really radical, but they're not anymore because all young people do now is go shopping and pick and mix their styles and there's no proper subcultural identity anymore. So you're rolling your eyes when you say that. You don't agree with that. <laughs> I'm just really sick of old punks telling young people that they're not doing it properly. Right, they're not radical enough. Yeah. yeah. And they're just looking in the wrong place. Right? And then in 2010, 2011, there's, you know, school students took to the streets to protest the cutting of the educational maintenance allowance. And there was you know, civil, some level of civil disobedience on the street around student protests. And it felt to me as though 
what else could young people do before someone will recognise they are politically active. We had more young people voting than ever before, more young people saying they want ethical jobs, more young people going signing petitions. People are now, young people taken to the streets and still the narrative is that youth culture is not very radical really, is it? So that was our kind of galvanising moment and it started off like all good things as a conversation in a pub. Uh, just had our second international conference but there have been lots of smaller conferences not only not always organized by us um we've got a huge facebook group which is full of practitioners you could say so these are musicians filmmakers photographers loads of djs journalists and people who identify as members of subcultures or fans or interest in youth culture which has a really vibrant discussions often where people can share resources We've talked about the collaborative projects that you've got going on and you talk about on your online profile about how your research is very much informed by your teaching and your interaction yeah. with the students. Um, so perhaps you can tell me a little bit about that. So myself and Chris Warren, who I work with collaboratively on pretty much everything, we co-write together, we teach together, um, we currently run the department together. We set up a new special subject called Post-Punk Britain, which was trying to think what would happen if we did history as punk. So rather than it being the story of punk, what happens if we took the lessons from punk and applied them to being a historian? So sell out, be toxic, make do with what we've got, do it together, like scavenge, those kind of ideas. And so we did that with the students. So every every year students would produce collectively and collaboratively a piece of online educational resource which could which is shared with other students in other institutions elsewhere so they set the agenda they set the seminar rules they choose the direction and we think about what it means it's where we talk explicitly about what we're doing in the classroom we talk about the politics of pedagogy we talk about you know, how do you intervene in the world around you how do you take something very small very seriously and students are really really positive about it we i mean we spend a lot of time building a collective identity as a group um, yes, and the post-wave Britain is we're just rolling out this year, partly because both Chris and I were really sick of old punks. We wanted to do something really challenging and really contemporary and really push how contemporary can history actually be so that the module now sort of starts in the 90s. It's not that unusual to be writing, working on punk anymore. And I think that there's almost a canon around it. And so I sort of see my job as slightly annoying the punk canon, really, and saying, actually, One Direction fans are much more interesting than what happened on, on King's Road, you know. What impact would you want these courses to have on your students as they go forward uh, into their lives? I think one of the things that I think matters about the way that Chris and I run those modules is that it takes the labour of teaching really seriously like this is a place of work it's not just a place of research and um, and it lets us think through with students the politics of their working lives as well so I think that's quite important and you know challenge everything be toxic you can get you know get through the day make the, make the best of what you can what does be toxic mean? just that maybe you can't infect maybe you can't change everything but you can just slightly infect it
do you feel as part of your activism that you are trying to perhaps um, readdress people's ideas of what a historian is or what they should be? I mean, is there something about that? So I think what I'm interested in is rather than just increasing the amount of people allowed into the academic fold is recognising that us within academia are just part of a broader conversation that is already happening. And that feels like um, an important thing to do.